Hello, this is Real History with Melissa, and it is the 23rd of February, 2023, and today I'm speaking with Larry from Indiana. Hi, Larry. Hi, Melissa. How are you? I'm fine, thank you. Good. Your background struck me as very interesting because you had from a really early age kind of gone your own way and maybe gone against the tide of what is expected and particularly your background in in business and and not just business but kind of doing things in a a big all-in way I thought was really interesting and I wanted to maybe just have you start with a bit of maybe your the family background and how you got into your first business endeavor. Okay. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me on the show. It's quite an honor being on your show with you. I've listened to Alan for many, many years, and I really appreciate you inviting me. It's my pleasure. I'm happy. I appreciate you taking the time to do this because you are awfully busy with your businesses. Mm -hmm. Well, what I'd like to talk about is the newspaper business. I was in the newspaper business for about 10 years. And I bought the newspaper. I really didn't know anything about it, but I quickly learned the business. And if I'd have known about the newspaper business, I may not have got got into it. But uh, I would like to introduce myself a little bit and give yes. you a brief history. Love that. Um, I started off when I was about probably nine or ten years old, going with my uncle. He was a cattle trader, and he would go buy cattle from family farmers and take them to market and sell them. And at that time, there was a lot of Family farms that raised cattle, most of them had cattle. They wouldn't have a lot. They'd have 10, 20 head of calves or cattle. Some had a lot more. But today, those family farms are mostly all gone here that raise cattle. But while I was with my uncle, he he was a pretty good mathematician. He could look at the cows and tell how much they weighed. And if there's 15 or 20 or ever how many, he could add up their weight in his head and multiply it by how much he would could sell them for at the market, and I'd give him price on how much he would pay for the cows. And as I was with him, we in those days, we didn't have cell phones, calculators, or computers. I would practice those formulas, so I learned how to do the math, how to add in my head and subtract, multiply, and I could do about any equation. You know, It didn't matter how many numbers were in a column. I could look at it and tell very quickly, you know, how to add it up or how to multiply it or divide it. And I learned those formulas from him while we was, you know, riding in the truck, going around. And uh, then what happened one day, the government introduced some type of diseases to the cattle. And the cattle got sick. The cattle business went away very quickly within a couple of years. Let me ask a question there, or a couple, actually. When you say that the government introduced something to make the cattle sick, do you know what that was? Have you dug in to find that information? And the second thing is, when when was this? Approximately what years, what period? This was in the late 60s, mm-hmm. middle 60s. I think by the early 70s, nobody much had cattle. Mm-hmm. And they introduced... One disease called the foot and mouth disease. Mm. I think the government had made that in the 40s. And it really, I think they really started in England. They killed millions of head of sheep, cattle in England. The government did. And it went to other countries, Ireland, Scotland. and But here, it devastated those farmers. And nobody knew at the time that the government really came up with that disease and put it out to make the cows sick and die. Mm-hmm. And at that time, they'd want you to walk through the pastures and put booties on, you know, cover your shoes and everything. And it was quite an experience. And the cattle business all went away. Nobody had cattle within a few few years, a couple, you know, two or three years. Yeah, that That is interesting. One of the old shows that uh, Alan and I liked to watch were we had a collection of All Creatures Great and Small. And it was based on, I don't remember the the veterinarian's real name or I, even his pen name right now, but it was stories of the big 
veterinarian practice, in other words, cattle and uh, pigs and, and horses, and it was covering the era right before World War II and then after World War II into the early 50s. And it, I hadn't thought about this before until you just said that, but what it was really showing in a uh, mostly true because these were just slightly fictionalized accounts of his experiences as a veterinarian in Britain, uh, the accounts of exactly what you're talking about, the government taking on more and more control of what they call quality control of like dairy cattle, that kind of thing. But what they were doing was putting small biz, uh, small farmers and ranchers out of business. That's what they did. And at the same time, here, I don't know if they did it, you know, in other parts of the country, but here, these small farmers had tobacco bases. They could grow so much tobacco on their farm and sell it, and it was cash crop money. They made some good money from raising the tobacco. So the government announced that they wanted to buy the people's tobacco bases. So the first year, maybe the couple years, it was optional. They could sell their tobacco base to the government or not sell it. And then I think in a, just two or three, maybe three years, it was mandatory they had to sell it and put all the farmers out of the raising tobacco. This would also and be the late 60s? Yes. Okay. I think it was in the 70s when they did the tobacco, okay. early 70s. Okay. The farmers made some good money off of it, but the government took it away from them. Who would have believed they would have done it, but the government <laughs> really done that here. Oh, I, I believe it. So well, this time I was starting into high school, and... I helped him with the cattle, you know, probably about five years. And I was starting into high school, and I quit the second week in there. I, I just couldn't see any benefit to me sitting there for four years. And so I quit. So what that would have been the second week of your ninth grade. Yeah. You dropped about, it. It was on a, about a Wednesday. <laughs> and today you really couldn't do that. But no. Back then, they wouldn't say nothing. Yeah. They never said nothing to me, and a lot of the kids, some of the kids quit, you know, maybe 20%, and they didn't say nothing in those days, but today you couldn't. Mm -hmm. he, uh, so I quit. The principal told me, he said, well, if you quit, you'll never get a job in one of these factories, and I thought that's fine because I never wasn't planning on going to work in a factory. At that time, if you had a high school diploma, you'd get a job in the factory. And I think they were just teaching them, the kids enough to where they could operate the machines. Mm -hmm. So your and sense and your sense at that age in the ninth grade was that everything that they were going to be teaching you of a so-called practical knowledge you had already picked up working with your uncle and your family, and it was a waste of time. Yeah, I thought I could benefit myself uh, working. Mm -hmm. And what had happened... When the cattle all went away, my uncle went in the construction business. He started building building houses. Mm -hmm. And this was probably set 1970. And so I went to work for him. And I learned how to build the houses. Every part about it, I learned the business end of it. And later on, I went to a community college and took some real estate courses. And I got my real estate license to sell, real estate salesperson's license. And then the next year, I went to a, a university and took some real estate classes and got my real estate brokers. And when I was 21, I opened a real estate office. And I was selling real estate, but then I was also doing some construction, building some houses. And also, I would buy and sell property. If I ran across a good deal, I would buy, buy the property and sell it. Mm -hmm. And that's how I got in the newspaper business. The guy that owned the newspaper came to me and wanted me to wanted me to sell it for him. I looked it over and I ended up just buying it from him. And that's what got me into the newspaper business. The building and the real estate business, because of whatever economic recession or downturn was going on, it, it wasn't that good at that time. And newspaper seemed more promising to you. I thought the newspaper may make some money, but I never could make it make money. What had happened, it was just a tough business. It took a, a lot of people to get that newspaper out. It was a weekly newspaper. And it took a lot of people to to get it out. It was 
expensive to operate, and it was just hard to make money in that business, but it actually helped me out in a lot of ways because also I owned a printing company. And it helped me in the printing company and the real estate company because I could do get a lot of advertising. Mm-hmm. So I made money from my other businesses from the newspaper. But the newspaper, if a, if I would have had to have depended on it, I couldn't have done it. But and you did, you it didn't own... Sorry. You didn't own just one paper... You had yeah. several, or no? I I had the one paper. The, okay, and the it one covered two counties. Okay, but the newspaper helped me a lot in the other businesses, you know, through advertising, and also in those small communities, the politicians couldn't get elected unless their name was mentioned in the newspaper in a favorable light. So the politicians wanted to get their name in the paper, and that helped me a lot. And it helped me in my other businesses also. It helped you with, uh, it helped you how, with the politicians themselves, like currying favor that would be good for your other, yeah. Yeah. Uh Yeah. Uh, Well, plus I could advertise my other businesses in the paper. It, It helped a lot because the politicians and other people too, they wanted to, they didn't want to get, they wanted to stay on the good side of the newspaper always. Mm-hmm. It, helped, it helped them out too. Mm-hmm. But it, it worked pretty good, even though the newspaper never made money. There were some things that you noticed, uh, you mentioned the other day about what you saw, the, the kinds of things that went into the paper that it was very important, you said, to the local community and to the churches, you saw some involvement. You mentioned an Ida Rebecca Lodge and the the church yeah. ladies, and I, I found all of that quite interesting. Well, what we did, we always would do, this was a broadsheet, a big paper, and there was like 37 churches, and they would put the news in every week. There would be some ladies at the church write everything down, you know, what happened in the church and the community the week before. And people really liked reading that. And if someone come to visit from out of town or a new pastor came or somebody got married, they would just mainly just write the gossip down. They would put it in the paper. Mm-hmm. And everybody liked reading it, not only their own churches, but they liked reading what was going on in the other churches also. And there was a lot of those ladies that were in the of Rebecca Lodge around there. And they were husbands, masons. So they were the wives of, of masons. Uh, uh-huh. keep, keeping track of everything going on in town. They did. And I didn't, I really didn't know that that was their job to keep track of everything in town, but that's what they were doing. Uh-huh. At that time, I didn't know. And then also we covered the local sports. Uh, parents liked to see their kids' names in the paper and we would put the grades, you know, how, how well your kids did in school, and we would post that. And people liked reading that, getting that type of news every week. Mm-hmm. You can see that they had, you know, many, many decades, a long, long time to study human nature and see how they would set up social networking that, you know, if, if people were happy to have news about them printed in a newspaper, of course they'd be happy to see it on Instagram or Twitter or Facebook, you know, it's just an extension really of gossip. That's what I see. My elderly aunt is on Facebook and she can tell me everything that is going on in this little town because somebody's sharing it and on their Facebook. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And I didn't know it when I bought the paper. I I didn't know it till uh, years after I sold the paper, but the CIA had started a program in the 50s called Operation Mockingbird. And what they were wanting to do, most people that's followed Allen for a lot of years, they know about Operation Mockingbird. And it's where the CIA wants to control all the news in the country. And if someone would have told me this when I bought the paper, I wouldn't have believed them. Mm-hmm. I would not have believed it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would think at that time I would have thought nobody could, can control all the news in the country, mm-hmm. but they did, and they're doing it. But what they did with my local paper, they would mail me a packet every week. It would have like a hundred plus camera ready 
copy that all we had to do is just lay down, lay it down, put it in the paper. Now, who were and, they that would mail you the packet? Okay, this kind of place in Lexington, Kentucky, and they said they owned the Parade Magazine. Mm-hmm. And this guy, he would call me up periodically, maybe once a month, and ask me, you know, how's doing, was getting it, and all that. Of course, they were getting a copy of my paper, so they knew what I was printing and what I wasn't. But I didn't know at that time that it was the CIA through a lot of sources sending me this material, and it was all propaganda anyway. What they were sending me, I didn't use it a lot, but if I needed fillers in my paper, I would use it because this camera-ready copy that they were sending us at that time it was very expensive to make, and it would be nice ad slicks, or, you know, stories with ad slicks. All you had to do is just lay them down on your paper, and you was ready, mm-hmm. uh, you know, ready to go to print. And they were handy getting, but I think they were sending them out to all the papers in the country, just spreading propaganda, the stories that they wanted to run, and mm-hmm. they was giving it away free. But this guy, he would call me maybe once a month or so, and he told me, I forget his name, but he said he was in Lexington, Kentucky, and they owned the Parade Magazine, and they were just sending them out, helping got, you know, helping other papers out. But it was really just the CIA's way of spreading the propaganda that they wanted to spread out to the people. Mm-hmm. Do you remember that article that uh, Carl Bernstein wrote for the for Rolling Stone magazine, the CIA and the media? I think that was back in the late seventies. I don't remember it now. It's a real. It's a really good article because he's basically. This was when the Church Committee did their big exposure of everything that the CIA was involved in. And there were some of these documents that were released were related to MK Ultra and so forth, but a lot of it was also related to the media, what you're talking about with Operation Mockingbird. And he exposed um, in a really good article in the late 70s what was going on. But the, the thing that I notice is that you had it's so easy for people to go back to sleep. It's just like with, um, you know, the, the NSA is spying on you or whatever, you know, you've got right. a whistleblower that comes out and everybody says, Oh, that's not good. And, but a few years later, it's completely forgotten. Right. It's true. But I don't think at that time in the eighties or late seventies that anyone would have believed that CIA would went and bought almost every newspaper, TV station, radio station, publishing company in the United States, but they bought most of them. Yeah, because, I mean, see, what you're talking about was a different piece of information. What Bernstein was revealing was, uh, you know, the fact that specific journalists were CIA assets, you know. Right. Yeah, I, I read the article. They had, like, some of them they paid some big money to. Really? Yeah, some of them, like, a half million dollars. They had, like, 2,500 journalists. Wow. Um, Let's see. No, they didn't have, I'm sorry about that. They had, like, 400 journalists and uh, 25 large news organizations that that was working for them. Mm -hmm. Is what they uh, admitted to. Well, yeah, I I remember Alan pointing that out a few times in different talks was that they had literally studied, you know, kind of done a little bit of a study on how many newspapers they thought they needed to control in order to essentially control all of the papers because the smaller ones would follow. And what you're talking about there with the packets that you got from Lexington, Kentucky and the connection to Parade Magazine. The Parade just ended last year, I think, but that was a, a supplemental kind of gossipy, new celebrity gossip kind of thing that was in big papers for years and years. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What the CIA was doing, they was paying the journalists to write fake stories. And I think they were just trying to see what they could do, but they ended up controlling the news. 
it's kind of hard to believe, but they actually done it, and they are doing it today. Yeah. Well, there's, I, I, I don't think we need to name names, but there are some um, very big hosts of shows, news anchors and more just covering all kinds of current events with a little bit of hard news mixed in there. But there are a few figures out there, both in what you'd call the so-called conservative media and on the more liberal or progressive side, who have had, you know, a lot of allegations and and fairly good documentation that they are uh, intelligence assets, but they keep working. And they are, you know, they're very important for shaping opinions. Yeah. At one time in the 60s and 70s and maybe earlier, a lot of people believed about everything they read in the newspaper. Mm-hmm. If they seen it on TV, they believed it. A few people didn't, especially the older guys that had been in World War II and the Korean War. They were more skeptical, but a lot of people believed everything they read in the papers at that mm-hmm. time. Now it's not like that. Most, a lot of people don't believe anything they read now. Yeah. But I, I think that even the the uh, the distrust in the media, that the distrust itself has been fostered actively, that this place where we are, where everyone is so divided and splintered and they're in their own little echo chamber of information, that I believe that that was an active agenda to create this kind of, I, I guess, I don't know what you'd call it, Tower of Babel kind of Tower of Babel, that's exactly it. You mentioned something. I don't want to get off track, so stop me and just keep talking about what you want to if you feel like it. But you mentioned a couple of days ago that you had this kind of advantage of distrusting the news. Didn't you tell me that a bit of it was maybe because of your own family background and... Yeah. My family comes from Appalachian region of the country, mainly eastern Kentucky in that area. And a lot of those people came that settled there in the 17, 1800s. They were from Scotland, Ireland, and they left there because they'd been mistreated so bad uh, in their own countries. And they came in through New York and then went as far as they could go, which would have been the Appalachian region of this country. And they were very clannish. They never trusted the government, ever. Uh, it's changed. The later generations, last generation or two, it's kind of changed. But for generations down there, they never trusted the government. Uh, even if an outsider came in, they would have to know you for your whole life and your whole family <laughs> before they would accept you in. They wouldn't trust, they wouldn't trust outsiders. Yeah. And it was that way for a few hundred years in that Appalachian region. But I'm told it's changing now a little bit. Yeah. The newer generations uh, aren't like the older ones that came in. Yeah. They've been dumbed and down. <laughs> dumbed down. Right. That's exactly it. Yeah. I think they, in the 90s, the government started a program called D.A.R.E. And they started teaching the kids at a very young age in school, rat on their parents and their families and friends, that the police was their friend, rat on your parents. And when they did, they would take the kids, of course, they'd put the family's parents in jail and take the kids and put them in foster homes. Was that was that a Reagan or a, a Nancy Reagan program? I can't remember now. I believe it was. Reagan... Reagan was the one started. He was closing the mental institutions and turning them into prisons. This was in the 80s. Mm-hmm. So a lot of the state mental hospitals, Reagan closed them and turned them into prisons. But that D.A.R.E. program was a program just uh, those kids early and teach them to be informants. Mm. Inform on their neighbors, their parents, anybody was what it was really about. They would give the kids candy, uh, little gifts, and the police would go around schools and talk to them, buddy up with them, and 
try to get them to inform on their parents if their parents was doing anything. And a lot of the kids would. They didn't know any better. Mm-hmm. They thought the policeman was their friend. And uh, it destroyed a lot of families. It still does. Yeah. And of course, now, this is 30 years later, those kids growing up, and they got kids. And uh, it's like becoming informants. I guess it's... It's just another way they're moving the country closer to socialism. And, uh, and yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's straight out of Orwell's 1984. You know, that mm-hmm. uh, and the and the father who was informed on by his daughter and ends up in prison said, "I'm I'm so glad that she turned me in because I didn't even know I had wrong think." You know. Yeah. But, yeah. But it actually happened here through that dare program a lot of other programs also but that dare program really yeah. went right to the schools I, and got the kids yeah i think the child protective services have been another biggie in that one too i remember do you remember when alan was talking to katarina a woman yes, in did. utah yeah she had lost her son to that program but it was very much like that you know it's like you you tell the social worker what's going on in the house, and the social worker decides if this is appropriate. And you know, at the the least little infraction, you may find yourself losing a child. Yeah, well, here in this state, it probably varies state to state, but uh, people in the child protective services they get their raises, promotions. And bonuses based on how many kids they extract from the home. Mm-hmm. So it's their goal to take as many kids out of the home as they can. Mm-hmm. That's how they make, you know, get their promotions, bonuses, raises. It's disgusting. I mean, and what's disgusting to see, you know, these little low-level psychopaths participate in a system like that. But you know ultimately the goal is to break up families you know there there's your ultimate yeah. tribe and what you're talking about too back in the you know your family coming from Appalachia and the clannishness of it you, you remember um Alan would say that in the highlands you you would need to know your family's history going back a few hundred years if you happen to be going to a, a neighboring clan's area because they needed to know that you weren't a spy so it was your knowledge of family history and clan history that made you okay someone that they could take in and give some porridge to yeah yeah that's true once i owned the newspaper and i talked to the sheriff at that time this was early on 60s i asked the sheriff how come he would take the people home like maybe if he caught somebody drinking driving or doing something he would take them home rather than put them in jail and at that time this was in the 60s and 70s people were very clannish and if they arrested a, someone in the family you know like a teenager or you know family member the next day the rest of the family and the cousins and all they would go down to the sheriff's office and demand that he get out and so I asked the sheriff how come he lets them out. He said he don't want the families coming down there to sheriff's office and taking up his time. He said it's easier for him just to take them home and let the families deal with them. He said they can deal with them better than I can. Mm-hmm. But there's a they don't do this anymore. If they get a chance, they will incarcerate everybody they can. Mm-hmm. But at that time, a lot of the police officers they caught somebody out drinking or whatever they would just take them home tell their family about it rather than lock them up because when they did lock them up the next day or the following day the family members would all get together go to the sheriff's office and get them out you know get the sheriff to let them go and that was the reason the sheriffs would let them take them home rather than incarcerate them well that's why you know at at that time and for a long time 
you know, the police and the sheriff's deputies and so forth, they really did come from within a community and they had, I'm not sure if sensitivity is the right word, but they certainly had an awareness of what was going on in their community and that they themselves were from that community. And of course, all of that, now the police and the sheriff's departments, they're, they're UN controlled. You, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, a lot of these departments are going over to Israel to, you know, learn how to tackle someone with a knee without, you know, killing them. But I mean, they're learning some very militarized techniques for dealing with people, and their attitude is definitely not that they're part of a community. Right. But yeah, they don't. They don't. In the '60s, I think it was the government's or CIA's intention to destroy the family unit and I think they did destroy them because when the family units were really strong the people didn't get treated as bad as they do now mm-hmm. yeah it was their intention to destroy the family unit oh yes all through the 60s mm-hmm. they, they probably started in the late 50s mm-hmm. then in the 60s they uh, they got it started pretty good the family units now are not nearly as strong as they was like 50 years ago or 60 years ago. Now, they're more on, families more on their own. Not all families. Mm -hmm. Some of them are still pretty strong, but a lot of the families uh, are not strong like they used to be. No, that's, there's a lot of destruction that's evident in so many ways. Um, all around us and we really are at that point now where you know big brother talks straight to us you know as individuals and you're lucky if you've got somebody who's willing to stand up for you stand up for you yeah i would have never believed the country would have came to this but it has mm-hmm. and i think it uh when CIA was able to control all the news. They may not control it all, but they control a large portion of the news in the country and the propaganda. For them being able to do that, they can get away with about everything, anything they want to. Absolutely. One of the things that we've just covered over the last week or so was is this idea. It's a, a Google subsidiary that is spearheading um, a new way of indoctrinating us called Mm pre-bunking and with pre-bunking you know fact checking is not good enough you know to to fact check an individual article or an individual journalist or a a news person is too labor intensive but Mm pre-bunking essentially they can teach you right think this is how you should think of this piece of news or this topic um, so it's a preemptive way in which the media is uh, warping our perceptions. It's an ongoing war, you know, and information yeah. information is critical. It's, so you ended up selling this newspaper before you were aware that the CIA was involved in the business. Yeah, I had I wouldn't have sold it if I'd have known. <laughs> yeah, and I'm sure a lot of other people wouldn't have sold their newspapers or magazines if they'd yeah. have known that uh, CIA was trying to buy everyone in the country. Trading with the enemy. Yeah, people just wouldn't have sold them. When they came through, they bought all the papers really quickly, uh, within a year or so. They went through and bought every one of them. Wow. Almost everyone. Yeah. Probably 95% of the newspapers in the country. A lot of them they bought, they consolidated them, closed them down, mm-hmm. uh, just uh, so they could, could control the news, and that's exactly what they're doing now. When you sold it, what, what year was that? What time period was that? It was 89. 89. Okay. And by... I think by 91, they had, they had them all. Mm-hmm. And they must have been in a big push because I think they started Operation Mockingbird in 53, and they had it under a 50-year secrecy act. 
nobody could talk about it for 50 years. So in 93, 50 years would have been up. Well, he wanted to get control of everything before the 50-year Secrecy Act ran out. But they could have probably got it extended for another 50 years if they would have needed to. Mm-hmm. So... At, go ahead. Well, I was just curious, you know, you... You always were someone who kind of went your own way and approached life and the things that you wanted to accomplish from a, the maybe a road less traveled. I mean, yes, you're in business, but you didn't approach it through a, the typical education way. And, and we may have time to touch on some of the other businesses that you were involved in where you just kind of jumped in and you didn't just do one thing. You know, if you bought something, you decided I'll, I'll buy 20 of them or a dozen of them. And that was interesting. But we, we were talking the other day and you just said you're, you're kind of really profound questioning of the way that reality is presented wasn't because of some pivotal event, say, for instance, 9-11, but it was more just an always thinking outside the box? Well, I think what really happened to me, my family come from Appalachian region, and they go back to Ireland, uh, England. I think they come here. Some One side came in the 1700s, the other one came in the 1800s. Mm-hmm. And they really had generations where they never trusted the government. And growing up, my grandparents and parents, I knew they didn't trust the government, and I never trusted the government either. And that, uh, that's where it came from. But how I run into Alan, I, was, I owned 14 cemeteries in eight states, so I was doing a lot of driving at that time. And I would listen to late-night radio shows. And one of the shows, I happened to hear Alan speaking. And at that time, he was talking about the three levels of intelligence or science. And he did the whole show, not the whole show, but he mentioned it during the show. And I was really impressed. I thought, my impression, I said, this guy really knows what he's talking about. At that time, there was a lot of people on the radio, but a lot of them really didn't know what they was talking about. And I kept searching for him more and more, and occasionally I would find him because as you were driving, you'd run out of the radio range and couldn't hear the station anymore. Or, uh, and then I kept going, and finally I learned that he had a website, and I could go to his website. I don't know if I don't know what year he got the website, but I could have been listening to him before he had cutting through the matrix website i think i think you were because i think you you told me that you'd been listening to him for about 20 years Mm -hmm. and uh, you know the the website at least the way that they were that they look today what was this like circa 2006 okay Mm -hmm. so he was talking for a lot of years before he had that yeah I was definitely listening to him before 2006, Mm -hmm. or I was listening to the radio shows before 2006. Uh, Must have been early 2000s, somewhere in that area. Mm -hmm. And since then, I've almost listened to him every day since. I probably (laughs) missed very few days listening to one of his programs. That's great. But when I was a kid, growing up, my uncle... Well, it really wasn't until about in the early 2000s he gave me this book. He was a Mason, and the Masons had tracked his family lineage back to Yorkshire, England mm. in 1532. And his father was a Mason, but there was 16 generations of Masons there. Wow. Dating back to uh, 1532. And the Masons had produced a book. I haven't saw the book in a while, but I've probably got it someplace. Uh-huh. Uh, had each one of them's names and when they was in the Masons, where they was lived. And the book went back to Yorkshire, England in 1532. But at that time, when I would talk to my uncle, I didn't know that to get high up in the Masons, you had to have a strong family lineage in the Masons. If you were first, second generation, you didn't get as high up mm-hmm. as you did someone that had been in it. You know, the families had been Masons for 
many generations. But I was never a Mason, never wanted to join. And I asked my uncle one day, I said, how high up are you in the Masons? And he never would say anything. He would just hold his hand up and some fingers. How many fingers? He, he would hold three fingers up. <laughs> I don't know what that meant, but that, that's all he would say. But I would go by it. Go ahead. Well, I was just curious. So that, that would have made that uncle 17th generation um, yes. Mason, mm-hmm. what, what was what was he like, other than being kind of quiet about it, since you weren't interested he in was being... A, he was a no-nonsense guy. Uh-huh. Um, he he never, like, drank or... Uh, did, he smoked cigarettes for a while, but he quit. But he told me once he never missed paying his dues to the Masons huh. for his whole life. And he... He was like in his middle 90s when he died. But I would go by his house. At that time, people would sit out on their porch. He lived in a rural area. I would go by and the sheriff would be sitting there talking to him or, uh, you know, maybe judges. And I think, what's these guys doing talking to my uncle? And I didn't know that at that time they were all affiliated in, in the Masons. He had, uh, he'd always had good jobs. You know, he could get good jobs around. He was an electrician. He just worked in his factory his whole life. He'd go to work and come back. And uh, his wife was an Eastern star. So he must have, and her, his wife's dad was the guy that I knew that was born during the Civil War. He was born in 1865 and died in 1969. Wow. But I knew him a lot. 104? He was 104. Wow. When he was 100 years old, he would walk to town. And it was like four or five miles walk. And he would walk walk back. Before that, he would just take a wagon and a horse and go there. He never owned a car his whole life. Wow. But, uh, so after the, I, this seven, this uh, this uncle, the seventeenth generation Mason, uh, that held up three mm-hmm. fingers, which we could take it probably a couple of ways, but he could have meant, you know, that could have been that that third level, that that high level, you know. But what I'm curious about, since he was a factory worker, was his connections in town were ample, or they they were. He, he he had higher connections than you might expect of an electrician, I'm guessing. Oh, yeah. There was a, a factory there, and the guy that owned the factory was friends with him. And he would tell me, he said, now, when we go to the Masons meetings, we're, we're all equals. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he told me that once. He said, at the Mason meetings, we're all equals. And the guy that owned the factory was also a Mason. He made the connections through being a Mason and got got to know the owner of the factory really well because of that. Mm-hmm. And the politicians and sheriffs and judges would go to his house and visit him. I, I never understood it at the time. How come they'd want to be friends with him? Because he never had kids. And his whole life, I think, the only thing he did in his whole life was work and be a mason that's interesting now you you just mentioned just kind of offhand that you that you ran that you owned 14 commercial cemetery businesses across eight states yes and we may have time to talk a little bit about that but one thing that i wanted to ask if you had ever considered You've worked hard. You've been. Um, you've got some common sense, and you have been smart, more or less, about your choices and your plans. I'm assuming. Yes, Did you uh-huh. ever feel that some doors were opened for you because of that lineage of Masons, or did you feel that you had done? Uh, I ask this because I once watched a movie with Alan called Brotherhood of the Bell. And in it, Glenn Ford plays a character who kind of realizes that this secret society that he got involved in is a little bit, they're asking a little bit more of him than he wanted. But one of the things that he realizes in the course of the story is that 
uh, that doors had opened for him because of his uh, affiliation with the secret society that absolutely would not have opened for him otherwise. Now, you were not a Mason, and you you were actually vocal about no. about not wanting to be one, but did you somehow feel a residual uh, favor coming your way ever, or no? No, nobody ever loaned me any money, or none of my family members or friends ever co-signed a loan for me. I was actually come from a pretty poor family when mm-hmm. I was younger, and I started to work at a very young age. And what happened? There was like four of us kids, but my dad got killed in a car wreck when I was really, you know, about 10 years old. But at the same time, my mom went blind. We didn't have any money. At that time, there wasn't a social services like there is now. Johnson was just starting them, but people that I knew would be too ashamed to go collect the food stamps and stuff like people do today. Right. They, even though they needed it and could have got it, they, they wouldn't get it. And uh, what I did, I just went to work at an early age working to support myself. No, none of them never gave me a quarter in my life. How I got the businesses is I'd work and save my money and buy them. And I'd learned early on how to trade and buy things and uh, how to go do business, how to get the loans at the banks and how to get other people loans. Even though like my parents and grandparents told me every day when I was a kid growing up, they said, don't borrow money, don't go in debt and all that. And I wouldn't, but later on I found out it was good for you to do that. Mm-hmm. After 71, when uh, Nixon took our monetary system off the gold standard, uh, at that time it was okay. It wasn't like when the dollars was really worth money when they were gold-backed. <laughs> and uh, when they went off the monetary system, it still changed, but it, it took me about 20 years to figure out what was really happening because they didn't come right out and say that the money's just now it's just created out of thin air. Mm-hmm. Or it wasn't 471 when Nixon took us off the gold standard. Things really changed, like when... I must have been about 15. I started working with my uncle in the construction business. We were building houses at that time, a three-bedroom house with a bath, bath and a half, attached garage, and a lot was selling for $10,000. No. Yeah. Hmm? Oh, no. This was this is the late 60s. Yeah, this was the late uh, 60s. Oh, that's just heartbreaking. But, so then what happened? They were being financed through FHA and VA loans. The houses were a hundred dollars down, a hundred a month, oh. and to get them. And as soon as we'd start a house, somebody'd come to and I want to buy it. So uh, I learned through my uncle how to take them to the bank, get them a loan, and all that because people want to buy the house, but they didn't have a clue what they had to do to get it financed at that time. So as it went on, the government kept pumping the money in the economy. Then the inflation hit, and Houses seem like in a six-month period or just a few months, they went from ten thousand to fifteen thousand. Mm-hmm. Then they went to twenty thousand, and then what happened? I think this was in the middle seventies, maybe seventy-six. Uh, I had the real estate company, and overnight, interest was eight percent. It went from eight percent. I woke up one morning; it was twenty-one <gasps> percent, and you could not get nobody alone. The banks. Wouldn't loan nobody a dime for nothing. The only way you could sell something was you'd have to get the seller to finance it or the person would have to pay cash for it. Mm-hmm. And it about killed the real estate business for several years till they got it straightened out. And that's how come I got out of the real estate business at the time. I wanted to be in a business that was recession-proof. It was a really bad recession there in the 70s. But when the inflation hit, the prices went up and they never went back down. Mm-hmm. And they they never do. <laughs> yeah. They've just continued to go up since 1971. Mm-hmm. But in 71, that's what uh, we were building a new house for. Wow. And that would include a lot, septic tank. Sometimes we'd dig a well, or if they had city water, we'd hook them on there. They and I imagine those were decent-sized lots, too, probably 10,000 square feet or bigger. But 
Some of them were several acres uh, at that time. Well, it, it wasn't that long ago, about no. 50 years ago. Uh-huh. And but they had put the farmers out of business. They wanted to come to town. They took, you know, the cattle from them and the tobacco. So at that time, you could buy a 40-acre farm with a house on it for about 20000 or 500 an acre. Mm. And the people would sell their farms, get them a house in town, which was a bad move for them. It was a good move for them at that time, but the farmland increased in value where their houses in town didn't increase as much as the farm mm-hmm. would have increased. Mm-hmm. But I bought a lot of land for 500 an acre. Some of it I bought cheaper. Uh, this was in the 70s. And I w- we would buy a 40 or 60 acre farm for like 500 an acre and then subdivide it and build houses on it. Mm-hmm. So because looking for something that would be recession proof, you went into the cemetery business. I started out just selling cemetery property, so I learned how to sell it, and I was good at it. Then I started going around taking contracts on cemeteries. At that time, you could get a contract for 35, 40, 45%. In other words, if you go into a cemetery and you take a sales contract, they would give you, let's say, 40% of what you sell. So if you sold $10,000 worth of cemetery and property in the cemetery, they would give you 40% of it for selling mm. it. And I would get contracts on uh, multiple cemeteries. I would go in, hire a sales crew, and teach them how to sell cemetery property. And I would keep the cemeteries going. So finally, I was wanting to buy a cemetery, so I bought a smaller cemetery over in Illinois. This is western Illinois. Mm -hmm. And I had it for a while. And this, out of the blue, this guy called me. He was a consultant out of Chicago. And he asked me, do I want to buy a cemetery up there? I said, sure, I want to buy it. And he told me how much. I said, yeah, I'd like to buy it. I said, I don't have the money to buy it. Oh, he said, don't worry about that. Just go get you a loan. I said, okay. And this was quite a bit of money. It was a 94-acre cemetery in uh, Chicago. It was about 10 square city blocks. Mm -hmm. And so I went to about 20 banks, and they all turned me down. This one bank told me, he said, you know, we loan on submarines, spaceships, but he said, we don't loan money on cemeteries. But each time I would go to a bank, I'd figure out, and they'd turn me down, I'd figure out, well, don't use that approach no more. And I, I kept going, and finally, I knew banks were pretty greedy. And I didn't know at that time that the money was being created out of debt. Mm-hmm. So the banks wanted to loan you the money because they're just going to create the money out of thin air. Mm-hmm. Then you own the money back plus interest plus fees. Mm-hmm. But I went to this one bank and told them I needed the money, and they uh, I got it from them. But how I got it, this particular cemetery had like millions in the trust. And I told them I went in there and told them I wanted to put so many millions in their bank. And they called everybody in, the vice presidents and the loan officers, and they was and I had them, you know, all the data on where the money was at and how it was in everything. And they was talking about transferring the money. They said, "Well, it'll take several months to transfer it." And so we got all done. I said, "Now there's just one catch to this." And the president of the bank said, "What's well, that?" I said, "I need to borrow so many million. They said, "Oh, no problem." <laughs> and that got me started. I figured out then that I could get the money to buy these cemeteries. And I kept going, getting turned down until I figured out how to get it. And really, I don't know, if I hadn't have kept going, getting turned down about 20 times, I would have never got in the cemetery business like that. Mm-hmm. And then I figured out that the money is getting created out of thin air and those guys want to loan it to you worse than you want to borrow it. Mm-hmm. So that's how I got the cemetery business. That's and interesting. the first one I bought was a big cemetery in Chicago. Well, then I bought some cemetery. Go ahead. I was just thinking as you were going through your business successes that you, you always thought outside the box and you had, yeah, I'm sure you had some hard times in, in the business world, but you had a lot of success there. But the interesting thing is, is that you never, that what's interesting to me is that that was never 
fulfilling enough. There was some kind of uh, either intellectual or spiritual curiosity that was a part of your makeup that got you interested in listening to Alan's talks and, and researching some things for yourself and discovering how the world really worked. Um, and I, I just thought you might want to elaborate on that thought about what the talk, how, how you incorporate those talks into your worldview as we wrap this up. Okay. Well, from the first time I heard Alan on the radio show back in the early 2000s, I was really impressed that he really knows or he really knew what he was talking about. He knew it very well, and every show he really knew him well. And over the years, I would go through and check him on certain stuff, and he was always right on what was going on. And the shows that I've listened to him for the past 20 plus, 20 years at least, they never get old. Those shows are just as relevant today as they were when he made them 10, 15 years ago, 5, mm -hmm. 10, 15 years ago. That's right. He, he knew that material so well, and he did a good job explaining it, that I didn't have any trouble listening to the same show five or ten times, and each time I would learn something that I didn't know before. Mm -hmm. I find that too. Even though it's the same show, I missed something earlier, and I would get it the next time. But I was impressed with him from day one. He really was a national treasure. There's just, I've not known anyone as smart as him that knew as much knowledge as he did. And he come across just like an average person. Yeah. Well, I've always been impressed. I have really enjoyed talking with you, Larry, and hearing a bit more of your stories and th what I'm learning with this podcast is that and the hour just flies in. It's amazing to me, but it just flies right by. So I, I hope that uh, people listening are getting as much out of it as I am, but I'm just enjoying it immensely. And I thank you for taking time out of your busy day. You sent all the mechanics and sales staff home early today, and I appreciate you you doing that. Oh, I was glad to do it. It's quite an honor being on the show, and I really appreciate you. I, I really appreciate you carrying on with Alan's work. I know you, you really are a hard worker. You're doing a lot. You're really busy, but I'm sure not only me, but a lot of other people out there appreciate what you're doing also. For a while there, most of us didn't know what was going to happen. And I'm always trying to come up with some way that we can preserve Alan's talks where future generations can can listen to them. If I ever come up with a good plan, I'll let you know that well, we can preserve them some way. That's, that's always on my mind. I'm always thinking about his work, and it's just a, a part of me and a part of my day that's you know, I, I was blessed to be with him so many years, and I want to give that back as richly as I can. So We uh, can't trust the Internet because nope. one day they could delete all the material and it'd all be gone. Yeah, that when I was speaking a couple of episodes back with the transcriber, you know, she, she said that, Alan showed her that, you know, these needed the talks, the transcripts of the talks needed to be made into booklets so that people could just fold them up and stick them in their back pocket because you just never know, you know, what will be left on the Internet. Yeah, there'll be some form, there'll be some iteration of information sharing in a world brain scenario, but will there be any truth at all? You know, so that's what... When we preserve Alan's work, we're preserving truth. It's true. Okay, well, thank you for inviting me to be on your show. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Larry. The pleasure has been mine. I really appreciate it. And um, we will be back next week. Well, I've got something that the world didn't give me.